Virgil stopped. Dante stopped. We're stopping too. Let's take a break and let's talk about where we've come in comedy. I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast, Walking with Dante, a podcast in which usually we walk passage by passage through Dante's masterwork comedy. But this is an interpolated episode, one that I thought I would insert here because Virgil felt the need in Canto 11, and Dante the poet felt the need in Canto 11 of Inferno to stop. So let's stop too. I want to start with the Italian critic Filippo Tommaso Maranetti. Maranetti wrote an article long ago, over 100 years ago now, in 1915. I found this article in a republication. Oh, it was a republication in 1968, actually. I didn't find it in 68. I just recently found it. In a republication, uh, Teoria e Invenzione Futurista, Theory and the Invention of the Future. And this uh, collection of essays had reprinted Marinetti's article that partially deals with the divine comedy. And there was a quote in this bit from Marinetti that brought me up short, and it is the subject of this episode of the podcast. So let me give you the quote. Here it is, essentially. Today, who can deny that the Divine Comedy is nothing but a foul, vermin-rich heap crawling with the ones who compile all those footnotes? What good is it to wander out onto the battlefield of thought when the war is over, just to count the dead, to examine the gruesome wounds, gather up the broken weaponry and the spoils of plunder, and do all this while the educated crows fly thickly overhead, flapping their papery wings. In other words, why so much talk about the comedy? And more importantly, why so many glosses? Because it is the Anglo-American attitude toward literature. That is, pull it apart, piece by piece. Pull it into smaller and smaller fragments. Divide the thing up. <laughs> Make sure your arguments turn on the tenses of verbs. Make sure everything about what you're doing somehow yanks the thing into all of its component parts. Dissect it. Take the cadaver of a poem and lay it out on the table for everybody to see. And good for you. You killed it in all of its pieces. You know, that is part of what's going on in this podcast. There's no doubt about it. And Maranetti's criticism is directed, not intentionally, but I'll take it right at me. I'm one of these crows flying thickly overhead, flapping, well, not my papery wings because I'm not writing papers, but mm, flapping my lip wings <laughs> because I'm making a podcast, flapping my mouth, let's say, overhead. And, you know, what? what's left to do once you leave all these footnotes? Just gather up the broken weaponry and the gruesome, look at the gruesome wounds and count the dead and gather up the spoils of plunder. No, there is much more. And although the Anglo-American tradition of criticism comes from this position of dissection, let me just say right here, since we're stopped, lift up your head. Lift up your head out of the weeds of comedy. We've been down in the weeds for a long time. Dare to do what Lot's wife did. Remember, Lot and his family are fleeing as Sodom and Gomorrah are being destroyed and Lot's wife turns and looks back and is turned into a pillar of salt because she dared to look back at the destruction of her home. Dare to be Lot's wife. 
look back at the road behind us. Think about where we've been. Think about the mastery of this poem. Think about the ways the poem has moved in and out of allegory. Beasts on a hill, uh, all the way to rain and hail with the gluttons. The way some things are so realistic. The way some things are so dreamy. The way that the walls of dysfunction both as a physical and a literary boundary. Think about all all of the pieces of this poem. Think about where we've been. A man wakes up in a dark wood. Think about how far he's come. Okay, 10 hours. He's walked about 10 hours, as we discovered. But nonetheless, think about what we've been through. You know what would be the best thing to do? If you got a copy of The Divine Comedy, read the first canto again. Read the first two cantos again. Read it and think about where you are right now in the comedy versus those two cantos and how they operate. You can find my translation for those passages on my website, markscarborough.com or walkingwithdante.com. It all goes to the same place. But look for the, the header there, Walking With Dante, and you can find my translations, but you can find lots of great translations out there. This would be a great moment to stop and see where you've come from because the journey is amazing. And if you stop here you're going to recognize the artistic achievement that's going on around you. My gosh, we've gotten down in the weeds with scholastic thought. We've gotten down in the weeds with Florentine medieval verb tenses. We've gotten down in the weeds with Virgil's slippy character, <laughs> oily old Virgil slipping right and left. We've, all, we've been so down in the weeds, and you may be missing it. We may should listen to Marinetti for a moment and say, hey, there's no reason to just scroll footnotes over this thing. For a moment, step back and take a big breath and look at this achievement that comes all the way up now to the beginning of Canto 12 of Inferno. And we're just at Canto 12 of Inferno. There are 88 cantos ahead of us. Think about the detail, the artistic achievement, the vision the comprehensive look at the world you've already gotten. Think about the problems that have been encoded into the text, the way the text voices more than one position at various moments, the way the text seems very forward-thinking, seems very regressive. Think about the pilgrim's emotional state, the the fright, the fear, the way the poem, the pilgrim suddenly develops anger with Filippo Argenti and wants to see him pushed back into the, into the Styx swamp. Think about that journey that's happened. All of this is so amazing. You know, all of us work in small plots. Dante did too. His plot's a little bigger than mine. But all of us work in small plots. His plot is Christian theology. His plot is medieval learning. His plot is scholastic reasoning, deductive-based reasoning. That's his plot. And yet, we've already watched him move the fence. We've already watched him expand what he thinks about the world, push out beyond Boethius, push out beyond Aristotle, push out, dare I say it, beyond Thomas Aquinas. Such chutzpah, such fabulous creative force. I have a friend, he just turned 89. He's really more my friend's father than my friend, but still, I know the guy. Turned 89, you know, in his 80s, he decided to play the viola, he still rides his bike like crazy. He still goes on big trips. 80, playing the viola. Can you imagine getting your 80-year-old fingers around the, the, the neck of a viola and trying to get them to bend, to hold the notes, right? Your 80-year-old arthritic, tired fingers. Not him. He's like, I'm going to learn how to play the viola. I want to do it. So he did it in his 80s. This seems to me exactly the point. 
to always be learning and to see the comedy as an expression of that, an ability for you to take a moment and just take a deep breath and say, wow, look how far we came. Look at Dante's achievement. Listen, we're, we're, we're taking our pilgrim on a long walk. <laughs> well, he's taking us on a long walk. We're taking him on a long walk through all kinds of footnotes and all kinds of line readings. He's taking us on a long walk across the universe. And it's just astounding what it's offering to us because I keep coming back to Dante, Dante the writer, not Dante the pilgrim, Dante the writer in the convivio, the banquet, and Dante's notion that the convivio offers busy people, and I know it's hard to believe that he considered the world too busy in 1296 or 1295 or whenever, that he considered the world far too busy before Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and all that. Nonetheless, his claim is that he is offering a too busy world a momentary glimpse of the contemplative life, of a life of quiet thought, of thinking, of peacefully reflecting, of reflecting to find deeper meanings in what's going on around him. That's what Dante construed as the nature of his task. And I think that's what we're doing. The podcast, Walking with Dante, is offering all of us, me too, a moment of the contemplative life. I hope that I am offering you just a node of the contemplative life, a node in which in your otherwise frenzied existence, if you're like me, your frenzied existence between all the work that you need to do and between social media and the demands of the modern world and the pandemic and all else, there's just a moment to sit and think with a little piece of poetry. There's a moment to be quiet and to reflect. There's a moment to look back and say, my, what a journey we've so far had. And there is much more ahead because the next episode, we step out amongst the violent and the poem is about to become more imaginative. Can you believe it? More surreal, stranger, odder. The voicing in the poem is gonna become more difficult. It's become more multiple in its perspectives the poem itself is going to move to places that from here we could barely imagine and it's going to move into places about what is the nature of poetry and why do we have to discuss the nature of poetry amongst the suicides oh fascinating and what is the end result of all this work fame and glory and why do we have to discuss that amongst the homosexuals and farther and farther down the road until we hit giant stories from various sinners, stories that rival Francesca and outdo Farinata in all of their glory and strangeness as they enter the poem and disrupt the certain sure theology it thinks it's preaching. Subscribe, come back, so much more ahead, but hey, for the moment. Aren't you glad we got right here?